Well, by now you should be at Colossians chapter 2. For the last 16 weeks, we've done a series entitled The End is Only the Beginning. It was a look at eschatology, biblical eschatology, the study of the last days. And we created a context in those 16 weeks to allow ourselves to properly address what's happening around us in our culture, in our society, in our nation, and in the world. Often when cultural um, circumstances are evaluated biblically, they're done so improperly and we have a tendency to validate an experience uh, with a biblical text that that biblical text isn't really speaking of. And sometimes we create a misconception and as a result we, uh, uh, we set a false expectation within the mind and the heart of the person who is listening. We felt it necessary that before we address the things going on in our world, we must first understand what does the Bible say about the last days? Those last days actually began at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We now, of course, are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. And as Christians, and here at Calvary, we believe in the physical return of Jesus Christ to this planet, to this earth to establish a millennial kingdom, to create a new heavens and a new earth. And often when eschatology is discussed and also studied, we have a tendency to stop at Revelation 19 with, the, of course, the incredible account of the Lord's physical return to this world. And often we spend very little time exploring Revelation 20, 21, and 22, which hopefully we did justice to in the last few weeks, looking and noticing and understanding that the end, that is his return, is only the beginning of something brand new. And that is truly why we called that series, The End is Only the Beginning. But now that we have that contextual framework, I would like for the next few weeks to address some of the things that I see happening in our culture that concern me from a biblical perspective. And also, I believe, continue to lay the groundwork for the rise of the Antichrist and also the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the next few weeks we've entitled, What is the World Coming to? Or, What in the World is Going On? When I was growing up, my dad, each and every time I did something that was inappropriate, He would look at me and he said, when we had a moment of private after getting caught doing something that obviously I shouldn't have been doing, he would look at me and he would say, what were you thinking? You know, and at first I used to just say, well, I don't know what I was thinking. And I found out very quickly that that was the wrong answer. Finally, I discovered that the right answer was, I don't know what I was thinking, Um, meaning dad, I wasn't thinking. That's what I should say. That was the right answer my dad was looking for. Dad, I wasn't thinking before I did what I did. We have to understand, as we look at our first subject this morning, that has really concerned me over the last six months specifically, but before that for the last five years. And that is, we have ceased to realize the power and the influence of an idea. 
upon our culture. Even the Bible tells us clearly that what we do begins and originates in the heart and the mind of man. And we need to understand that the thinking, the philosophies, the philosophical ideas, the ideologies that we adopt as people and as a society have a direct impact and correlation with what that society will do. So let us begin with that simple introduction to chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. Paul writing to a city named Colossae, and he realizes that the city, in its philosophical approach in the secular community, was now targeting Christians and undermining their idea of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ within their life. Specifically, the sufficiency of Christ to save the individual. But then Paul backs up a moment and he takes a wider perspective of what's actually happening here and he writes these words, already instructing the church in Colossae to keep Christ in a place of preeminence within their life, meaning a supreme place that nothing else would override or uh, try to subdue the position that Christ can only fill within a person's heart. But then he says this, In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches in the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father, And of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Over the course of the last year, I have had more people say to me in personal conversation, those who are saved and those who are not, continue to tell me that they no longer appear to be able to relate to the society around them. Christians in particular would often say to me in the course of a conversation, I don't understand what people anymore, I just don't get people anymore, and what they're all about. Of course, then it's followed usually within the course of that same conversation, has the whole world gone nuts? Has everybody gone crazy? 
And then, of course, they would get to that same line that my father introduced to me at an early age in life. What are people thinking? Why are they doing what they are doing? Again, those are legitimate questions. And they're asked from a position of frustration due to the fact that we as a society no longer look at and critically analyze the thinking in which we hold to and possess or the belief system that we have adopted and realize that that system, whatever it may be, as orthodox or as eclectic as that system may be, it directly affects our actions as an individual. You know, I like to say it this way, coming from the tech industry, and that is that a computer is really two components. It has hardware and it has software. And either one of those uh, components, independent of the other, is useless. It does no good. But the hardware will only do what the software commands it to do. Think of that as an illustration of the ideas, the philosophical reasoning, the uh, uh, ideologies that we carry driving us and moving us as a society in the direction that they desire us to go. And sometimes that direction is unknown even before we adopt those ideas. And I'm going to talk about that more in a moment. But even the Bible, 2,000 years ago, knew that the idea of a person affected the actions of a person. For James said this, James in James chapter 1, 14 through 15, said, but when each one is tempted and is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and the words there in the Greek give the impression of one thinking about and considering the temptation before them, allowing it to uh, stir in their mind, meditating on it from a, uh, a perspective of meditation in the sense of chewing on it. And then he goes, he, he goes on to say that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, what it is full grown, brings forth death. It starts in the mind. That's why Paul when he wrote at the end of Romans, his theological masterpiece. And he says, Therefore I beseech you in Romans 12, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our actions are a direct result of our heart and in our mind internally working outwardly. So it is important to understand that the ideas that we adopt will have a direct impact upon what we do. Many today, well, let me just take a quick show of hands. How many either in high school or college or grad school uh, took a philosophy class? Anybody? Okay. Very few out of all of them. Josh, your teacher's awesome, by the way. Yeah, good guy. Pretty cool. Yeah, he's in my class. Um, 
Very few Americans have taken a philosophy class. We no longer teach it in high school, and even colleges now are removing it from their catalog of courses to take. And there are various reasons for that, and they are numerous. But one of the consequences of doing so is that a philosophy class should not only expose us and educate us on the philosophical ideas that, you know, our secular society is um, based upon, you know, from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and etc., knowing thyself, as Socrates would say. But a philosophy class also helped us think through big ideas. A a good philosophy class would not only teach us philosophy, but it would teach us how to become a philosopher, allowing us to apply the two critical aspects of philosophy to our everyday thinking. The first aspect of that philosophy is called analytical philosophy, and when it we take the individual words of a big question and we try to define those words or the concepts behind those words in what they really truly mean and what they stand for. And then speculative philosophy, which is really no longer in favor in our country anymore, that then asks the big question and it asks the big question to the point where not only do I want to know if this big question is relevant for my life, but how should it affect my life and how should I act accordingly? And as a result, you and I no longer work through ideas philosophically. And, you know, people align critical thinking with that also, but there are various definitions of what critical thinking really means. But Paul, in his mastery, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, first and foremost wants to reiterate to those saved in Colossae that all wisdom, knowledge begins with God. If we as believers in Jesus Christ do not start from that point, we are going to get lost in the conversation. We're going to get lost in the wilderness. Notice what Paul says in the first three verses, back in Colossians chapter 2. Though he hasn't been able to be with them face to face, he is teaching them from afar. He hopes to be with them soon, but notice in verse 3, when he states, I'm sorry, verse 2 and 3, he states that he wanted them to have the full assurance of understanding. What understanding? the knowledge and the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Before Paul addresses or warns us about the philosophical systems that we are going to come in contact with, he must first ground us in the realization that all true knowledge and wisdom come from God. They are treasures to be had. That there is no superior thinking or intellect than that of God. Paul in other places in the Old uh, New Testament make it clear that the wisdom of this world is mere foolishness to God. So we as believers in Jesus Christ when we confront an issue, an idea, a philosophical principle, 
we must begin always with the word of God. The psalmist said it this way, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise forever and ever. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon himself, the wisest man who ever lived, said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One of the... uh, How do I put this? One of the sad realities for many Christians when they study theology is that they study theology often from a biblical or a systematic point of view and they lose the whole identity of the theology that is behind it. What do I mean by that? All theology of Scripture comes from the character of God. Our understanding of theology is truly then uh, our understanding of who God is Himself. When I study the scripture, it's not only for understanding the theology, but more importantly, it's understanding my, my father, to know him. I don't study the book, the, the, the Bible for, the, for just personal intellectual development. I want to grow in the depth and the breadth of my relationship with the God of the word of God. And Paul saw that. Now, there's a very interesting verse in Isaiah chapter 33. In Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6, I'll read it for you. Isaiah states that wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Let me read it again. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. What is going to create security and stability in an insecure world and an unstable world is our knowledge of God and of his word. Understanding, as I summarized, I said, believing that God created all things to interact in a prescribed manner, this understanding shows me how I may interact with God, and this leads me to understand the world around me and how I may interact with it. This is exactly what Jesus was getting to when he was confronted by the Pharisees and scribes in Mark 12, 28 through 31. He says, then the one of the scribes came to him and having heard them reasoning, notice that, together perceived that he had answered them well, asked him, which, in the first, which of the commandments is first of all? And Jesus answered him and said, the first of all commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no God before him. That's when he wants to establish the sovereignty of God. But then he goes on, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and with all of our strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like it, and it is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. 
And here's what Jesus is saying. That not only do we need to know our God, but we want, in that knowledge of Him, which is truly the essence of eternal life, to know God eternally, we are also then to love Him. Because in the realization of knowing God, I then come to the realization that God loves me, and in the wake of that, I now love God, right? Isn't that what John says? We love Him because He first loved us. We as Christians should constantly be on the pursuit of knowing God, understanding who He is, understand what He desires of me, how He desires me to interact with the creation, the fallen creation around me, and living for the purpose of glorifying Him in all that I say and do. We as believers in Jesus Christ need to realize that we are now seeing in our culture a conflict of worldviews like we have never seen before. We at Calvary here have been talking about worldviews, Jeff can attest to this, probably for the last 15 years easy. Because we started realizing that in the biblical illiteracy that we're finding throughout the church of america that a biblical worldview hasn't been able to be developed because the lack of theological knowledge and understanding and knowing who god is and this has now created a problem within the christian church in america We don't know how to confront issues anymore because we don't have the biblical resources, the knowledge of God to do so. And there are various reasons for this, and I don't want to get into all those reasons this morning. I don't believe that they are necessary for our discussion. But I certainly believe that it has created a vacuum. Because as the world progresses in its ideas and thinking, the church should have been that countering point that challenges those ideas and the progressions of those ideas in our society being salt and light within the world but we can seem we apparently can no longer do that and there's many reasons for that but you on the street played a huge dynamic role in that because there are people that are never going to walk into a university or walk into this church or walk into a place where they would be exposed to these ideas. And on secular campuses today, we don't even allow for the opposing position to be heard anymore, do we? Twelve years ago, we wanted to host a debate here at a local Christian college on the detriments of theistic evolution. And when the college discovered that we were opposed to the idea of theistic evolution and the ramifications that it presented within our society, they shut us down because we hold to a six literal day creation. But the impact of evolutionary thinking upon our society is now so evident in everything that we do. I was just talking to a college student just recently And she said to me that in her psychology class, she's going to a secular school in the area, her psychology class, before they even got in to the topic of psychology, the professor fully established 
an evolutionary system of thinking before psychology was ever addressed because he or she knew, I don't know if the professor was a she, I believe, she knew that the psychological principles that she was going to teach her student wouldn't make sense unless they adopted an evolutionary perspective of this world. And of course, when it came to the discussion of transgenderism, at the end of the chapter, there was one small paragraph of about literally three sentences that basically said that transgenderism is genetic, period. Oh, really? Well, as far as I know, that in 1992, according to Jurassic Park, we mapped the genome then. Okay, that was a joke. That was probably one of my best ones. You guys are really laxing today. We have no scientific evidence whatsoever that transgenderism is genetic. But we are throwing that around more and more and more and more without any evidence, scientific evidence, and people are just simply believing it. Even Christians. Even when God clearly says, I have made male and female. Very clear. I don't know how much more clear it can be. And the last time I looked, there are now currently 121 different genders considered here in the United States of America. Paul then goes on, notice here in verse 4, he says, Now this I say, demonstrating clearly that all knowledge and wisdom comes from God. And he wants us to be, uh, number 2, if you look in verse 7, rooted and built up in that, in him, and established in the faith. Why? Verse 5. Notice this with uh, verse 4. Excuse me. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you, and we're going to talk about deception next week, deceive you with persuasive words. One of my teachers, uh, who I miss dearly, is Dr. Norman Geisler. He once stated that we should never be intimidated by large words. He says often they just hold more hot air. And I really like that. Because often when you're in a discussion and people begin to use a vocabulary of words that have 13 different syllables, of course I'm being facetious, it's quite intimidating. Oh, they must know what they're talking about. Oh, that sounds so intellectual. He's a smart guy. She's a smart woman. And then you begin to think about it. And then you're like, what did they really say? What did they really mean by that? And often we find that these words cloud the issue because either they or we ourselves have never qualified the definitions of those words or the concept behind those words, so we really don't understand the idea that they're trying to develop. Remember Paul said very clearly that when he's come into different regions, he made it his purpose only to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified. He kept it very simple, but profound in its you know, meaning, right? Incredibly profound, simply profound as I like to call it. But now ideas of the simple crucifixion and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in the day of Paul was being challenged by these lofty philosophical ideas. I really encourage you to read Acts chapter 17, if you will. Not right now, but when you get home. 
And notice how Paul uh, familiarized himself with the philosophical reasoning of that day. But notice that Paul warns us that in the loftiness of these persuasive words, this rhetoric, do not be deceived, do not be taken captive by these things, as he'll warn us in just a minute. He's saying that this is key crucial. Please understand. Because the essence of this understanding When he talks about deception, he's talking about a deception created by arguments of false reason. He's talking about plausibility and false speech resulting from the use of well-constructed, probable arguments, convincing, plausible language. Meaning that what they're saying could plausibly be true, but he says in that plausibility also know that potential for deception now why is it plausible it's plausible because they can't truly verify its authenticity well it sounds reasonable have you ever heard that before that sounds reasonable to me then you discover it's not reasonable at all and paul says we are going to be lost if we are not approaching these things from the wisdom that god has given us in his word One scholar wrote, in fact, Norman Geisler, he said, only this full knowledge of wisdom of Christ can keep a believer from being deceived by fine-sounding arguments, persuasive speech, plausible but false arguments. And then he goes on to say, truth and persuasion do not always correlate. Error can persuade and truth can be compelling at times. It all depends on whether one has the full truth and a complete commitment to it. Now, this raises the question at this point in our conversation for those who object to the fact that there is any absolute truth any longer, correct? I mean, once you take that out of the equation, you have moved the goalposts to play the game any way you like, right? Because there is no absolute truth, because the pragmatic philosophy that we have adopted in our society allows each and every individual to determine truth based on their own personal experiences. And I think the Bible even addresses that when it says that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's very interesting. In verse 6, Paul then goes on, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up. The word rooted there that Paul uses is interesting. In the same manner, the soteriology understanding of us being predestined before the foundations of the world, Paul uses a parallel word in the Greek rooted. He wants us to be rooted as deeply in God as we are deeply rooted in him and his foreknowledge, uh, uh, you know, in our, before the foundations of the world, he already knew who we were. That's the concept behind what Paul is saying here. He wants us to be deeply rooted in Christ. Being rooted in Christ is knowing him. It's knowing him personally and intimately. And that knowledge of him comes through our understanding of Scripture, but also it comes through our life-leading 
uh, experiences with God throughout this world. Seeing God's faithfulness time and time again to his promises should reassure us time and time again that God will time and time again be faithful to those promises over and over again. And as a result, and Paul says, let us be built up and established in the faith, meaning that we are immovable and unshakable in our positions, even though the persuasive words of philosophical thinking are bombarding us from day in and day out, we will stand strong in our understanding of God and his word. Now, immediately, if I were to say this to somebody in the world that I was debating, they would come back and say, well, you're very close-minded. I say, well, you know, there are so, so many people who are so open-minded, nothing sticks, everything falls out. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we know that there is no higher th- uh, intellect, thought, reasoning, and understanding than God himself. And his wisdom is given to us in his word. And you and I, I don't care who we are, I don't care what our intellectual capacities are, I don't care what it is, with the Spirit of God within us, He'll lead us and guide us into all truth. It's accessible to each and every one of us. What a beautiful thing that is. Well, I've been making our way to our conclusion this morning, and that is the warning. These verses that we are now entering into are the foundation for the reason I decided to teach the philosophy class for the high school homeschool students on Tuesday mornings. And if they write a summary essay of this message, they will get extra credit. Um, But notice what he then says and everything that he has just told us. He says, beware, be alert, be on guard. Today, more than ever, is not a time for us to adopt the way of the ostrich, burying our head in the sand as Christians. We must look at our world objectively, and we must counter it with God's truth, now more than ever. Now more than ever. We must be aware. That means understand the falsehoods that are out there, We don't have to understand them thoroughly to make debates and arguments, but know that they are out there. But more importantly, what is crucial to each believer in Jesus Christ is to know God's truth fully. That's really the more important essence. But notice what he says here. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you. That word cheat means to rob, plunder, steal, kidnap, destroy. And how will they do it? Not physically, but ideologically. Notice what he says here. That this cheating, this kidnapping, this robbing, this mugging will take place through philosophy and empty deceit. There's a debate if the word and there in the Greek should be with empty deceit, meaning that the philosophy that they offer, the Greek word there for empty deceit, it really speaks of one who fills a jar full of water, takes it home, thinking that they have that water to use to only discover that when they go to that jar, promising water, there is no water in that jar. As It speaks in the Old Testament about cisterns that cannot hold water. 
Paul's saying that these philosophical ideas promise a lot, but they don't deliver anything. These philosophical ideas will be uh, shaped and formed in the sense that we are, they are needed for our lives, but yet they are unable to give us life or to produce life within our life or to better our lives. This is the only time Paul uses the Greek word philosophia in the entire Bible. I believe that Paul, during that time, began to see that as the gospel went into the Gentile regions apart from Israel and Jerusalem, he noticed that, of course, through the Greek culture and then followed by the Roman culture, these cities were, you know, just replete with secular philosophical ideas that were constantly challenging the fundamental tenets of Christianity. And so Paul needed to prepare believers for this conflict of ideas. Some of them were derived uh, from their worship of pagan gods. Others were adopted from the Greek era that preceded them in the Roman culture. It was a pluralistic society like we have never seen before. And today we live in a pluralistic society, right? And amongst the various gods that are allowed to be worshipped here in the United States of America, we also have the God of self, humanism, secular thinking that we must contend with. And the philosophical ideas that contradict the Bible, contradict God, are of empty deceit. They sound lofty, they sound intellectual and intelligent, but they have nothing to offer the believer in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Paul's conclusion was is that they will erode the believer's understanding of the sufficiency of Christ, either that for uh, salvation or knowledge of life and godliness and so forth. That these philosophical ideas would erode the sufficiency of our holding of Jesus Christ. My wife's a preschool teacher. And I am amazed at how theologically developed her three-year-olds actually are. When she goes to pray with one of the little ones who have maybe hurt their knee on the playground and it's sore and they just want to go home and call it quits, Dina will ask him, let's pray and let's see if the Lord will make it better. And then she'll say to those children, do you believe that the Lord can make it better? Oh yes, I believe that the Lord can make it better. He's God, he can do anything. Just that simple. Faith like a child. Now our society would say, well, that's just, you know, irresponsible. That is, you know, uh, immature thinking and so forth. But wait a minute. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about my understanding of who God is. God can do anything, right? Can God do anything? Then why do we often limit him to our own personal abilities and perspectives? God can do anything. Paul knew this. Paul knew that the ideas that the world would offer would erode the sufficiency that Christians had in their understanding of who God is and what God was capable of doing. And then he goes on to tell us that this philosophical thinking that brings nothing but empty deceit 
is truly according to the traditions of men, meaning that it was it, it arrived and was created and are architected by human reasoning. Human reasoning apart from God. The next word in the, this phrase in the Greek is very difficult to translate. The King James, old, uh, New King James, translated to the basic principles of this world. But others debate that it should be translated to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Do we understand as believers in Jesus Christ, and all of this is coming to a head in just a minute, hang in there with me, you're doing great. There is God's wisdom, right? And then there's the world's wisdom. There's only two categories. There's only two categories. God's wisdom is from God revealed to us through his word. The ruler of this world, Satan himself, Jesus said, has come to steal, kill, and destroy, right? But how does he do that? How does he still kill and destroy? Well, he uses philosophical ideas to do so. He's already created a world system that is antagonistic to our Christian life, isn't it? John said it this way, that all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, right? This is the world system that the ruler of this world has created to already draw us away from God. So why is it difficult to believe as Christians that the thinking of the world has also been architected by Satan or simply a product of the depravity of the individual's heart and it too will be used to lead us away from God. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? And we as Christians need to be aware that we don't adopt such worldly philosophy within the church and run with it thinking because there are similar principles within it to Christianity that God is necessarily behind it. When it talks about this philosophy that I mentioned to you is only mentioned once in the Bible, Paul is saying this. As one commentator said, he said, it could be the way in which people are wise or the way in which people understand things or the manner to which people reason. I believe the difficulty that we're having with the world around us is due to the fact that as we are sanctified in God and the world is going the opposite way in their continuous slide down, you know, the slide of depravity, the gap is getting bigger and bigger and we can't relate to people as easily as we once did because they think so differently than we do. But let us understand that as Christians, not only has this world been created in a manner in which to draw people away from the Lord, but it's also the ideas behind it. Paul said something very interesting in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 when he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Well, what are they blinded with? What did, why did Paul say, let our minds be transformed and not conform to the image of this world? The thinking, in a large respect, I believe, is the center of this blindness. Obviously, 
God releasing someone from the bl- this blindness is a sovereign act that he does, and it's incredible. When we evangelize, please make prayer a necessity in your evangelism that God would open their eyes. As he reassures his readers in verses 9 and 10, for in him dwells all the fullness that is in Christ of the Godhead bodily. And you are what? What is that word? Complete. Underline that. Highlight that. Defile your Bible in any way you wish to defile your Bible. You are complete in him. My pursuit of understanding philosophical reasoning started back in the 1980s when I first got saved. I was sitting at, uh, in the, on the floor for a Bible study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I was a young man. I just had recently re- accepted Christ. And he had a guest speaker come who wrote one of the most controversial books in the 1980s. It was called The Seduction of Christianity by, Di- by David Hunt. And he challenged the secular ideas of philosophy, I'm sorry, of psychiatry and uh, psychology. And he showed the dangers of both in the life of the Christian. He used this text, which launched me into all kinds of different pursuits because I found it fascinating. At that point, Christian counseling consisted more of secular uh, ideas than it did of biblical principles. And people weren't getting better and sanctifying in the Lord. They were getting worse. One church in this area actually started administering in the 19, early 1990s uh, the truth serum to help people realize their feelings and thoughts. It got way out of hand. The Christian community rejected his book to a large part because they believed, nope, that there was something more to be offered to fix the spirit of man through secular wisdom than what the Bible had to offer. I'm going to say to you right now, there is nothing in the secular wisdom that can fix the spirit of man or of woman rather than what is in the word of God. That's a big statement. That's a huge statement. 33 years I've concluded that. God can fix a person inside and out. Today we are confronted with a philosophy that is tearing apart our world. Everything we've just talked about is now leading us to this short little period of time together. It is called the philosophy of critical theory. Applied specifically to critical race theory. Many of you may have heard the term, but don't understand what it means. Going online, I took their definition of what critical theory is. And again, it's destroying our nation. It's destroying our nation because of the manner in which it's being taught. It's something that we should be aware of. But it is being taught in universities across America today that critical theory is going to be the salvation of the United States of America and it's going to rid us of all the injustices and social injustices and racial issues that we are experiencing today. 
The problem with that is that critical theory has never worked in any society in which it's been applied to. In fact, it's destroyed the societies that it's been applied to. But because in the irresponsible manner in which this is being taught and their unwillingness to allow the other side of the argument to be present in the conversation, they have crafted an idea that is supposedly uh, going to bring utopia upon our world and yet dystopia is the constant fruit in its wake. Let me just read for you one's definition who is a a proponent of critical theory. And they openly admit that critical theory is a Marxist-inspired movement in social and political philosophy originally associated with the work of the Frankfurt School, drawing particularly on the thoughts of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, critical theorists maintain that a primary goal of the philosophy is to understand and to help and overcome social structures through which people are dominated and oppressed, believing that science, like other forms of knowledge, have been used as an instrument of oppression. They they caution against the blind faith in scientific progress, arguing that scientific knowledge must not be pursued as an end in and of itself without reference to the goal of humanity's emancipation. Since the 1970s, critical theory has been immensely influenced in the study of history, law, literature, and social sciences. This is what we are seeing develop and manifest in our society today, a philosophical idea that basically renders, based upon categories created, critical theory determines who are the most likely to be the most oppressed within a society. And the role of critical theory is then to liberate those who are oppressed. That liberation comes from, number one, silencing all others who are not of that uh, oppressed category and therefore lifting up the opinion of those within that oppressed category and listening to them only for their understanding of the world and the woes of the world. But secondly, because it has to do with the oppressed, the Christian church in America says, well, wait a minute. Jesus was worried about the oppressed. Therefore, critical theory must work hand in hand with Christianity. That could not be farther from the truth. Now, understand how God views people, not in categories like we do, but as people who are in Christ and who are not in Christ, right? Completely a different look upon our society altogether. And it begins with that perspective and develops from there. For example, when psychologists say, well, what's wrong with psychology and why should Christians be weary of some of the principles of of psychology? I state this, that one of the tenets of psychology often begins with that all people are born good. And therefore, their environment has, must, has influenced them to do wrong and to do evil. That's incredibly simplified, I know. Please don't yell at me. But the Bible tells us something completely different, doesn't it? 
then we aren't born good. We're born evil and wicked and in need of a savior. And because we've told everybody that they were born good and outside influences have affected their decision for right and wrong, evil and so forth, they're no longer responsible for their own personal actions, are they? To help you understand critical theory, I'd like to show a short video this morning. I know we've gone very long, um, but I know you have nothing else to do today. Um, But this is so important to me to get this out in the open and talk about. I'd like to show a a five-minute video, and Nathan, I'll turn the lights off in just a minute. But this explains why critical theory is not compatible with Christianity. And in all that we have learned, I ask you to consider what the video states about its compatibility with Christianity. While you were watching that video, you see and understand the impact of critical theory upon our culture. You understand the activism. You understand the social liberation. You understand what, why these things are taking place and why these individuals are seen as oppressed and why you're hearing more and more people saying, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed. It's because of the manner in which critical theory categorizes these people. Well, you guys have been great this morning. You've given me way more time than I usually take with you. May I ask to conclude by you turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The reason I bring this up today is one of my great concerns to let us know that we are truly living in the last day. That as our society continues to push God out of our conscience in every way, shape, and form that our society can try to do, that has left a vacuum, a void within our society that theories like critical theory, again, notice the title, critical what? Theory. We don't know if it's true or not. Just like evolution has taught its truth, but it's a theory because we can't replicate it. And yet look at the implications that it's had upon our society, the repercussions that we have sown due to the adoption of these things. How long would it take for the Antichrist to use such a theory as a critical theory in dividing our culture even further, stating that Christians are the oppressors to the progression of the society? Hmm, I think I just heard a politician say that recently. But notice what Paul says, if you think, wow, this is way out of line for a Sunday morning service. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul saw that an aspect of spiritual warfare was the philosophical, ideological understanding of the secular world. These arguments that the world poses is meant to be, are meant to be confronted by Christianity and the Word of God in a loving, careful, tactive way. This year I was so sorry to see Ravi Zachariah go home to be with the Lord. He had an extraordinary gift at engaging in people who adamantly disagreed with him. I hope more can learn from the manner in which he interacted with these people. 
The people are not our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers that are behind the secular world. The weapons that we carry are the prayer and the word of God, and these things are indispensable to the Christian. We must confront ideas that are shaping our culture. As Norman Geiser concluded, I'm sorry, William MacDonald, another very uh, gifted commentator, wrote, let me read this to you in conclusion this morning, and then I'll be glad to answer questions after service for you. Paul saw himself as a soldier warring against the proud reasoning of man, arguments which oppose the truth. The true character of these arguments is described in the expression against the knowledge of God. It could be applied to today's reasoning of scientists, evolutionists, philosophers, and religionists who have no room for God in, the, in their scheme of things. The apostle was in no mood to sign a truce with these. Rather, he felt committed to bring every thought into the captive obedience of Christ. All men's teaching and speculation must be judged in the light of the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul would not commend, uh, condemn human reasoning as such, but would warn that we must not allow our intellect to be exercised in defiance of the Lord and in disobedience to him.